You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Stunned and appalled that we did not do four groups in at one hour yesterday. Yes, yes. How surprising for us. So we are back today with groups C and D. Uh, we'll start with group C, obviously, because that's how the alphabet works. And we have Argentina, Saudi Arabia, Mexico and Poland. So Argentina finished second in the South American qualifying round robin behind Brazil, uh, unbeaten in the group stage, 11 wins, 6 draws. Little bit unconvincing at times, I thought. And it's certainly not a vintage Argentine squad, but there is a lot of talent here, Carl. And I think if things go right for them, they could be among the favourites to win the competition. Messi is Messi, and I know he's not the player he was, but he is still capable of utter genius. And if they can get five weeks of vintage Lionel Messi in November and December, I do think they have a real chance because there's a good goalkeeper, there's strong defenders, and I think there's enough talent in midfield. It's just a matter of whether they have a consistent goal scorer next to Messi for me. Yeah, I think for a long time, the two keys for Argentina has been about one, the system and where Messi fits into that or how the system fits around him to get the best out of him. And two, which number nine or support and forwards they use, depending on which system, whereabouts in the system he has been. Uh, it's been a, a real mix and match for quite a long time for Argentina. They never quite seem to have settled on a single role or how he'll get the best out of everybody else or all the rest of it. So it's quite important that they try and keep as much consistency in that regard as possible. Uh, I'd agree with you on the 
qualifying matches that they had, sometimes they looked really, really good for spells in game, but overall I found it a lot more um, predictably functional and just had enough of being better than the other team and sort of quite quite often they would rely on just long spells of possession to eventually see the opposition sort of misstep tactically or not close down someone or just not be quite as good all game long as, as Argentina themselves can afford to be. Yeah, I mean, I do think there is a disadvantage to Argentina and Brazil with them having so many of their players based in Europe. You know, you think of, let's just say, Fabinho and Jordan Henderson get called up to their international teams. Well, Henderson gets picked up at his house and driven to St. George's, meets with the England squad, and then if they're flying out, they fly out. Fabinho has to make his own way to an airport, gets on a plane, flies to Brazil, and then from there meets up with the team and then has to fly out again, potentially for games. They do put a lot of extra miles on their body. Same thing with the Argentinians, obviously. A lot of them are based in Spain, the Spanish players. It's all very simple for them. But for these South American players, I do feel like they are at a disadvantage, which sometimes comes through in the qualification stages with the the quality of football that we see. But when I look at this team and see, you know, Emi Martinez is a solid goalkeeper and Franco Armani's talented. Um, He's older, he's more experienced, but, you know, he has proven himself for a long time. Um, My hope is that Musso is fit and comes in as the third keeper over Geronimo Rulli, just in case the worst happens. You'd much rather have Musso than Ruli. Defensively, Nehu and Perez is very talented. Tagdifico is reliable. Montiel is, is decent. Pizella, I'm not a big fan of. Acuna, I'm not a big fan of. Romero, I love. Medina, I think, is good. Otamendi is only in the squad because he's best friends with Messi. Lisandro Martinez is talented, obviously, and uh, Molina of Atletico Madrid is talented. Like, there is a strong defensive group there, with Romero sort of as the linchpin of it. But I feel like loyalty to, well, loyalty to Leo is probably going to lead to them weakening their team by playing Otamendi. And I know he is better for Argentina historically than he has been at club level, bar that spell at Valencia. But still, I just I don't feel like their best eleven should include him, but most likely it will. Yeah, it seems most likely if everybody's available, you would pick Romero and Otamendi to partner each other. Uh, I would probably prefer Romero and Martinez, or as a three with Otamendi in the centre of it all. Um, he's not like maybe the most aerially dominant, but he doesn't have to be dragged out of position that way. He doesn't have to be pulled out into the channels and try to tackle people when they're literally making him move because he can't turn anymore. He can't spin in behind when they when they try to run uh, behind the defence. So maybe playing in centre of a three would be a bit more protection for them if they really did want to. But he does seem pretty much stuck now on the 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1, depending on who his extra uh, third midfielder is. So I... I think it's okay. Mm. Um, you know, you, you're probably going to come unstuck against one or two forwards along the way. Um, 
And at those moments, obviously, you've got to hope that either Agunia's really good on the cover or Emi Martinez is very, very good in the one-on-one, which he is, generally, to be fair. So it's not the worst thing in the world. And like I say, maybe maybe having the continuity and structure um, heading you know, throughout not just the build-up to the tournament, but the tournament itself is a little bit more of a positive than having Otamendi, who's maybe not their absolute best performer. Agreed. Um, then in midfield, you've got Paredes, you've got Rodrigo de Paul, Angel de Maria, Nico Gonzalez, who's more of a winger than a midfielder. Uh, Alexis McAllister has kind of carved out an opening in the squad from Selfie's five caps now. Uh, Guido Rodriguez of Real Betis, Giovanni Lo Celso, Papu Gomez, who's more of a final third player than a midfielder, really. And then you've got the youngsters, Enzo Fernandez, currently uncapped, but I think they'd be mad not to bring him. And Thiago Almada, who I don't expect to go, but he is very talented. Like again, that is a good group of midfielders. Um, there's also the likes of Ezekiel Palacios and Nicolas Dominguez, who haven't been included in the most recent squad, but are kind of squad regulars. The one thing I think it lacks a little bit is like that that Mascherano type ball winning physical force. There's a lot of really good footballers in there. A lot of guys who can make things take and unlock defenses. I just don't know that there's anybody who brings that physicality, that that ball winning into the midfield. Yeah, definitely not on that level of Mascherano, at least. I mean, Guido Rodriguez is their ball winner, really. Uh, he's you know, a bit of a terrier. He's tenacious. He'll play the defensive midfield role if they want someone in there to be specifically sitting. Um, I think he's a good player. But he's obviously nowhere near actually Mascherano's level. Like, I don't think that they possess a midfielder who is of that quality at all anymore. Um, but again, if you don't have that one specific skill set, what you have to try and do is maximize what you do in other areas. And I think if they have Paredes and Depal as a, a double pivot pairing, neither of them are as good ball winning as Mascherano are. Neither of them are as good, let's say, ball carrying as when Di Maria has played centrally during his career. But together, I think that they cover most of the bases, to be fair. Um, I do think that you know, on the ball, they're probably a little bit better than when they had, let's say, Cambias or centre midfield quite a while back. Um, I think that they have good reliability mm. in terms of protecting the defence while not being absolutely elite. Maybe the question... They're a little bit slow, though. Yeah, yeah, they're a little bit slow. The, the whole team, I find, a bit slow in transition, to be perfectly honest. And it's not, like you mentioned on the, on the A and B mm. uh, podcast, it's not always about the speed of play in international football, and especially maybe with the conditions that we're going to be facing in this World Cup. So maybe that's not going to be the big downer that it would be if we were talking about a Champions League match, for example. Um, I do think Paredes and Depaul is a good combination in terms of in both halves of the pitch, they can pretty much do everything between them. And sometimes they're going to be a lot better individuals than they're going to come up against. It's going to be in the very biggest of matches against the very best midfields elsewhere, where maybe overall you're going to see them lacking a bit. But like I say, Guido Rodriguez then brings that a bit of bite maybe that they'll need I think there's a couple of people in this current squad who yeah. they, don't, they don't really need to take if I'm being brutally honest I don't think Lo Celso is going to add a whole lot to this um, I agree with you maybe only one of those two uh, uncapped midfielders is going to go Enzo or Diago and then maybe there's a bit too much similarity up front as well 
Yeah, so that's the next area to look at. So we've got Julian Alvarez, Joaquin Correa, Angel Correa, Paolo Dybala, Latura Martinez, and of course, Lionel Messi. Now, there is no real number nine in that group. You've got Dybala, who's like, not to be disrespectful, but he's like a poor man's Messi type of player. Um, you've got Alvarez and Laturo, who are probably best with another striker. Both have really good movement. Both are very hardworking. Angel Correa, I'd put into the same sort of basket. And then Joaquin Correa is a, a different sort of player. Again, he's more of a second striker. And he, his game is based more on his intelligence and his, I suppose, ability to find space between the lines. Whereas the others are a bit more dynamic. What do you think is the likely, like, starting attack for this team? If we, if we work on the assumption that it is 4-2-3-1, that Paredes and DePaul play as a double pivot, what do you think the front four will be? And if it is 4-3-3, who's the third midfielder and what are the front three? Oh, I mean, looking at the, the arrangement of their fixtures in the group, they got Saudi Arabia first, uh, Mexico second, and their last game is against Poland. So I would expect it's going to be 4-2-3-1 against Saudi Arabia for sure. Uh, and I would expect that they might use Messi as the 10 in that game. He has played as a 10, he's played as the 9, and he's played from the right side for them. So depending on the system will sort of change up how he operates. I don't think there's any need to have a third midfielder for Argentina against Saudi Arabia, to be blunt. Um, so I would expect maybe that's a game that, let's say, Lautaro starts as the nine. Assuming Di Maria is fully fit, he'll start on the wing. And then you've got, like I say, quite a few options who can play that right-sided role and not be necessarily standing at it but also not you know in, in any way leave the team short or anything like that you can even see Di Maria start on that side coming in to be fair and someone like Joaquin Correa from the left hand side um, so I think it would be quite quite an all-out attack sort of quartet in the first game and then maybe for the Mexico match that's when you bring in at the very least Alexis McAllister uh, as the 10 because that's where he's mostly played he's not playing in the deep mm. role for Argentina like he does for, for Brighton this season and if not, then maybe you do bring in Guido, let's say, as the extra defensive midfielder. But I think Guido is much more of a an in-game change for them than an actual starter at this point. So he's less likely to be in the 11. Yeah, if you want to see a game out and hold a lead or something. Yeah, exactly. Or if it's not going your way and you need to... Uh, I, I agree more. with that. I think that... Okay, go ahead. A bit, a bit more oomph in midfield. Um, I think that's fair. I think that is fair. Um... There's, there's a lot of talent in the squad and it's going to be interesting to see, you know, the, the, the function of this team will be to get the best out of Messi or to maximise Messi because this is likely his last World Cup. I, I don't imagine he goes in 2026, but you never know, he might. Um, but this is certainly going to be the last one that he has an opportunity to to win, I think or to win as a major piece of the team. So they'll want to get the best of him and put players around him that he is comfortable with and he feels can aid that. <clears throat> I, I think they are one of a group of winners, or a group of potential winners. I wouldn't have them at the top of that list. But I do think they're a team that, if things go right for them, could end up winning the tournament. What, what do you think of them? What's your ceiling for this team? 
Um, well, I do think that the ceiling is to win it, but I do think it needs everything to go perfectly for them. I think that uh, the mix of the team looks pretty good, but I think they've got to take people in really good physical moments. I mean, Di Maria is still a really important player for them, but he's had quite a few physical issues over the last year uh, when he was at PSG and now even this season already at Juventus. So I think they can manage to have people like him. Romero is obviously especially important in that regard as well. He's had a few injuries himself. If they can have them at full capacity, then yeah, they could go very, very deep into the tournament. But it's still really important that they get that the Pidu. If it's not going exactly according to plan, put Messi as the nine and get more people in and around him and it gets a little bit chaotic. So I, I think there's still work to be done there before I can say they're my favourites but if it clicks for them you know, and it has to be done for, what, four games really if you just assume that they'll figure things out, the last few things that they want across the group stage, then three or four games getting it right and you're done. Yeah, I think that's very, very fair. Right, let's move on then. Saudi Arabia. So in qualifying, they topped Group B of the Asian qualifying stage ahead of Japan and Australia. So quite an impressive feat. Oman, China and Vietnam made up that group. They won seven of ten games and drew two of them with just the one defeat. So they came through in very impressive fashion. And as with the hosts yesterday, Qatar, I haven't a breeze who these players are. Uh, there's one or two names that I recognize. Uh, Al-Sharani, Yasser Al-Sharani. I've seen him play um, for Al-Halil. I know he's a pretty good left back. Um, there's a couple of others that I've seen literally here and there, but I'll leave it to you to talk about anybody that you are familiar with in this squad. Thank you. That's very kind. Um, there are about three or four names who stand out, um, having seen before. Uh, the goalkeeper, Mohamed Al-Ois. I think, if I'm remembering this rightly, and I've not had time to go back and check, that he was the one who came in in the 2018 World Cup and actually had a couple of really decent games. It looked like he you know, might be able to get himself a, a move to Europe at one stage and then decided not to in the end. Uh, Asrash Sharani is, is one of the ones you mentioned. He's been around for absolutely ages. I think he's one of their most capped players, but they are, as you say, all still playing in Saudi Arabia as well. And then a couple of them that I mentioned for the uh, Qatar squad as well in yesterday's podcast who had spells, uh, loan spells arranged for them basically over in uh, La Liga a few years ago. Well, there's a couple in this squad as well. Uh, so Fahad al Walad is one of them. He was a winger who was very, very briefly at Levante, and he did get a couple of games. Nothing, you know, overly dramatic, but he, he did play a couple of times at the end of the season. And Salem Al Dalsari, I think he pronounced his name Dalsari. Uh, he was at Villarreal, so he got quite good reviews for for his training and you know his contribution to the team while he was there. But actually, I think he only played once in the end because obviously Villarreal had a quite a reasonable squad at that time, so it was very, very difficult for him to actually get any kind of involvement. I think it was a bit of a a token appearance at the end of that season that he got, but it was generally good feedback from him. So, look, they're going to have the advantage of the climate is something that they're very used to. They're obviously geographically quite close to Qatar, so they will likely have 
a strong travelling support. But are they here to be anything more than the whipping boys? Now, it is their sixth World Cup, it should be pointed out. And the furthest they've gotten was the round of 16 in 1994. But traditionally, they haven't done particularly well. I don't expect them to do particularly well in this one. Um, Is there any scenario in which they don't finish bottom of this group? Um... I think only if they get very fortunate, to be honest. I think it's a really tough start for them getting uh, Argentina first, to be honest. That could be a little bit demoralising. Maybe you would expect them to lose that one and they'd be playing for sort of second place, but it's a really strong group, this one. Um, you know, Poland, in the history of football, maybe isn't one of the greatest, biggest nations, but they have been really, really good at a few points in history. And it kind of just is bad luck for Saudi Arabia that right now Poland have a really strong squad. Um, it's, I think, a very, very difficult group for them to get a single point out of this, to be honest. Yeah, I agree with that. Let's move on, then. Let's do Mexico next. So for Mexico, this will be their 17th World Cup, which is very, very impressive and actually surprised me. In the CONCACAF um, qualification, they did what they were expected to do and came through automatically, though they did finish second just behind Canada on goal difference. 14 games, 8 wins, 4 draws, 2 defeats. It's a pretty strong squad, and there'll be a number of players that people are familiar with. Um, I think everybody knows Hector Herrera. Everybody knows Edson Alvarez. Uh, Andreas Guardado has, uh, Guardado has been around for years. Guillermo Ochoa, the goalkeeper, has been around since God's dog was a puppy. Um, Eric Gutierrez at PSV Eindhoven is a a solid player. Diego Laniz, who's on loan at Braga from Real Betis, was meant to be their next big superstar, but it hasn't quite worked out. They've obviously got Raul Jimenez and uh, Chucky Lozano in attack as sort of the, the two big names there. What do you think of the squad as a whole? Do you think there's a possibility that they can do what they've done in the past and maybe spring the odd surprise? Because there is talent here. There's quite a nice squad. I mean, Mexico are pretty much always the standard last 16 team, aren't they? Um, it's it's basically what they do. They'll, they'll sneak through the group with a win or somewhere along the way. And then just when you think that they're looking good and there's a good bit of technical ability about them, they kind of just quite do what they look capable of doing and i must admit this is probably in a build-up over the mm. next month or so the squad that i'll be looking at more so than most others because i haven't seen mexico play in quite a while actually since i think probably the the canada and uh, u.s qualifiers so i've not 100 percent sure how good i think that they are because in the game against the usa they looked really really strong they played very well they were um comfortably the better side for spells but they didn't win and it was a bit of a bit of a surprise to see them be a bit blunt in attack considering some of the build-up play but then when you look at the actual squad and who they've had in attack it's kind of understandable as well because Raul Jimenez is still playing quite a prominent role obviously but we know that he's not been anywhere near what he was he's not you know a regular goal scorer anymore 
Uh, Lozano has never really been a regular goal scorer at international level. He's got about a one in four strike rate, mm. and nobody else really in the squad, apart from the, the real veterans in midfield, have hit double figures. So I do think that there's a, a few problems for them going in here, um, even over the last few international uh, friendlies and, and other matches that they've had. With the exception of Suriname, they've not really managed to put more than one goal past anybody. Uh, over the course of the last like six, seven months, sort of thing. So it's it's obviously an area of concern for them. Like I say, some of the build-up play can look very, very decent, but I will have a very close look at them because on the on the numbers that they have and the players that they have, they're a little bit um, wolves on the international scene. I think that's a very fair comparison. Actually, they they are the type of team that are very tough to beat. They can dominate games but the lack of goals is a concern and they do often end up losing games that they probably should have won like you said they're they're that typical round of 16 sort of team um they've only ever gotten beyond that they got to the quarterfinals twice and both of them were world cups held in mexico so maybe in 2026 with the world cup being you know partially held in mexico they can aim for the quarters there. That they obviously had their, I don't say their golden era, but they had that really strong team sort of in 2012 that won the Olympics and then a couple of years later won the won the CONCACAF Gold Cup. But most of that team has aged out and hasn't really been replaced all that well. There's There's a lack of that sort of 26 to 29 year old players in this squad. There are only none of the, oh, one defender, uh, Jesus Gallardo, uh, one midfielder, Eric Gutierrez. Oh, sorry, Luis uh, Romo as well. Uh, Luis Chavez, but he's got five caps and isn't, isn't very good. Um, and Chucky and Henry Martin, the, the only forward. So like, it's sort of an old squad and a young squad with not a whole lot of players in their prime. There are a lot of very talented young Mexican players. Um, that kid at Jordan Carrillo at, at Sporting Gijon is very highly regarded. Marcelo Flores at Oviedo is very highly regarded. He's the kid that's in the Arsenal Academy. Um, Jonathan Gomez at Real Sociedad is very highly regarded. But these players aren't quite in the squad yet. They're kind of on the fringes of it. And it feels like this World Cup is just sort of the end of one era. And in 2023, they'll have to kind of start over and start building for their future. This is sort of the last hurrah for the likes of Ochea, Guadardo, Hector Moreno, Nestor Arroyo probably retires from international football after this. It wouldn't surprise me if Jimenez retired from international football after this. Um, Rogelio Funes More, who's obviously the brother of Rogerio, um, or no, Ramiro? Ramiro's his brother, isn't it? Ramiro? Funes More, I think that's him. Um, the one that played for Everton and booted Divock that time. Um, he's become a naturalized citizen and made a bit of an impact this year, but I, I just don't see them making a huge impact. For me, if they can sneak second and get through, I think it's a great achievement for them. I wouldn't expect them to go any further than that, but 
Right now, if I had to pencil them in, I'd say probably third in the group ahead of Saudi, but behind Argentina and Poland. Yeah, I think Mexico uh, will be forced into a renewal, basically, on the back of this World Cup, because I think that they'll disappoint. Um, I could actually see them in the final game against Saudi Arabia being where Saudi Arabia could actually get a point if there's like a lot of changes to the team. Um, everything basically for, for Mexico is going to come down to that first game. This is one I think they have to hit the ground running because that's against Poland. And Poland are my sort of second favourites in this group, if you like. And if Poland do beat Mexico, then that leaves Mexico really needing to get a result against Argentina in the second game straight away. So it's a really tough um, arrangement of fixtures for Mexico. And as I, I don't quite see at the moment that they have the certainly the attacking players and certainly the... Recent form, at the very least, let's say. Um, I will take a good look at them. Maybe that'll change my mind and that there's just like maybe a little piece of the jigsaw is missing, perhaps. But at this point, I would have to say that I think that they will maybe take a win, maybe not, but definitely go out. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, right, the last team then is Poland. And this is a fairly strong squad. Now, there's a number of players here who when they first sort of burst onto the scene, look like they would become better than they have become. But it's not to say there's not talented players. Now, I'm not a big fan of Szczesny, but he is a decent keeper. I do like Dragowski, but he hasn't really established himself for the national team yet. They've got Jan Bednarek, who everybody will know. And obviously, Matty Cash, once he's recovered from this injury, will be back in the squad as well. Uh, Camille Glick, who was in that Monaco team that won the league and did really well in the Champions League. He's still knocking about. He's the vice-captain. Um, you've got Carol Linetti, who's been in Serie A for a long time, is a good player. You've got Matthias Glish from Leeds. Um, Peter Zielinski, who Liverpool fans became quite familiar with a couple of weeks ago. And then up front is sort of where their strength is. They've got Arcadius Milik. They've got Christoph Piatek, and then the main man, of course, is Robert Lewandowski. There are a couple of other players not in this current squad due to you know one reason or another who might get a uh, get a look. I, I think Kasper Kozlowski, the youngster who's on loan from Brighton at Vitesse Arnhem, might get a call up. He's very young; he's only eighteen, but he already has six caps, and as a creative midfielder he might be able to offer them something that they don't have elsewhere. Um, unfortunately, it looks like Jakob Motor will miss the tournament with the tie injury that he has. And that's a huge one because I do think he would have been a starter for them in midfield. And he's very, very good as he was beginning to show at Brighton before getting hurt. But all in all, it's, it's a pretty strong squad. Um, one thing to note... Um, Gabriel Slanina, the young goalkeeper that Chelsea signed from Chicago Fire, who's currently back on loan at Chicago Fire, he has also been called up to the Polish squad of late, but I think he's going to decline that and stay with the USA, having been born in the USA. But, you know, it's just another potential goalkeeping option. They obviously have Camille Grabara, who, uh, former Red, who is an option for them, but is injured at the moment. But what do you make of the squad? Who else, outside of Lewandowski, obviously, who is it that excites you about this team? Uh, I, I would like to think that Milik will have a good tournament because I think he's one of the sort of several forwards around Europe who 
always seem like on the verge of absolutely exploding and showing what they're capable of on a regular basis, and it never quite happens for him. But he has started this season in fairly decent form. I'm not really sure how the move to Juventus sort of came about when he's been sold and loaned and everything else over the last few years, and nobody seems to want him. But there he is, and he's doing bits. So I think it's quite important that Poland, like Argentina, I suppose, sort out how they're going to have their attacking arrangement, because when they have... Of a three-five-two with Zielinski behind two forwards, I think they they look very very dangerous and quite well balanced uh, defensively. But at other times they can look really defensive when they go four-one-four-one and just sort of play everything off Lewandowski. Nobody really gets close enough to him. So I think you know, considering like I've said, this is quite a difficult group. I wouldn't be surprised to see them at least start. Um, with the three-five-two, uh, and hopefully, like you say, Cash who would play quite a, a valuable role for them as, as a wing back in that role is one of the ones who'll be available. Elsewhere, if they play Zielinski as a ten, he's definitely worth watching because he's in really good form again this season. And Zimanski is, is capable of having a good tournament as well if he if he does end up getting a, at least a semi-regular starting spot for them uh, in midfield. Um, but yeah, I think I think if they can pair Milik and Lewandowski somehow, or at least get them playing, you know, one of them off the bench, which is going to be Milik in that case, at least fairly regularly during matches, they will be a, a really tough outfit to stop, to be honest. And Piatek, maybe, maybe if he gets a couple more goals and gets a little bit more form for himself before it all starts, then he can be another option for them off the bench as well. Yeah, I mean, Piatek is one that, Everybody remembers when he landed in Syria, had that outstanding first four months with Genoa, looked like he was the next big Polish star, went to AC Milan far too early for him, needed more time at Genoa, didn't work at Milan, bounced to Hertha, then he got didn't work there, got loaned to Fiorentina, where he was brought in to replace Vlahovic, didn't work. Now it's Salernitana on loan. It's a bit of a shame how things have gone for him, but there's there's definitely a talented player there. The one thing we know is that they're going to be really hardworking and they'll be tough to beat. Now, they don't have great individual defenders. You know, Cash and Bednarak are decent, but they're not great players. But they will... They will throw themselves in front of things and they will make themselves hard to beat. They'll be very resolute. They won't give up at any point. And they're just going to be a bit of a pain in the arse to put away. So I think they probably end up finishing second. I can see them beating Mexico and I think they will beat uh, Saudi Arabia as well. Could they get a draw against against Argentina? I think it's possible. Yeah, they could do. I do think it's possible, especially if both teams have already qualified. I think that, you know, if, like I say, a lot comes down to that first game. If they, if they go out and they beat Mexico and, uh, sorry, yeah, sorry, Mexico. If they beat Mexico, it sets them up so nicely, you know, do the job against Saudi Arabia and you can rotate whatever you want then in the last game if you have to. Um, uh, it's it's so important for both of those nations that they get the points on the board. And I don't want to see either of them settle for a draw and take their chances in the rest of the games. That would just be would be playing with an opportunity to go through. That's what I think about that. Um, one other player who I completely forgot to mention a second ago was uh, Nikola Zalewski, who's just started playing uh, in the Roma team on a, a fairly regular basis. He's not like a 90-minute mm. player for them, but he can play defence and he can play on the wing. So 
again, you would like to think that whether they're the four four one four one or playing with wing backs, he's going to get a, a pretty regular spot on that side. And he looks a decent little player as well. Only twenty. He does. He does. And there are a couple of you know Jacob Kaminsky at Wolfsburg has looked a decent player as well. So you know it, it's promising for them. And and the the centre back at Spezia, um, Jakob Kiwor, he looks fairly dominant when things are, are going well from so yeah I mean it may well be that Poland are a, a team to reckon with you know they, they they won't win it but they won't go out too easily they obviously came through a hard path in the um qualifiers as well had to go through the the back door system got the rub of the green when Russia were disqualified but beat a good Sweden team who were fancied to beat them to uh to get here so they'll want to make the most of their opportunity and and like with a number of other world stars this is probably the last world cup for robert lewandowski who will want to go out with a bang you know so credit to him i think uh i think he'll i think he'll put up a performance um so argentina poland mexico and saudi arabia one through four we agreed yes Right, let's move on then to Group D, which I think is one of the more interesting groups in the competition. You've got France, you've got Australia, you've got Denmark and Tunisia. France won Group D of the UEFA qualifying section. Um, 18 points from eight games, five wins, three draws. Not the, not the toughest of groups, admittedly. Ukraine, Finland, Bosnia and Herzegovina and Kazakhstan. But this is an exceptionally strong squad with an exceptionally strong group of players not making the current squad. So I think they'll go in as one of, if not the favourite. Now, I do think there's a couple of big question marks for them. But my overall feeling is that when you've got Mbappe, you've got Benzema in the form that he is, You've got the likes of Chuameni in midfield starting to really establish himself on the world stage. You've got a strong defensive core. I think you've got a great opportunity here. Now, there's a few question marks, and we'll get into them. But what are your thoughts on France? They should be the favourites to win, and they should, to be blunt, go and win. That's um, that's what I think of this squad. It's a, it's so packed with talent, and even the people who you, sort of read the names out and you don't immediately think, oh yeah, really, really good, like world-class. Like people like Jordan Veritu is again having a really good season. He's had a really good couple of seasons. Antoine Griezmann, who is you know, even a starter mm. most of the time now for Atletico Madrid because of reasons, he is ridiculously good and he's so important tactically for this team as well with the amount of work rate that gets through. People like Usman Dembele, who's been a, a letdown for a few years, but is again finding his feet at Barcelona and back in good form they've just got so 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 much talent and I mean even you look at the goalkeepers like um, three goalkeepers who I really like and have quite high on a few of them we've been waiting for at least two of them to explode for a couple of years in Ariola and Lafont and that's like not even including their captain who's already a World Cup winner so they do have an unbelievably mm. deep squad if you have a, a three-man midfield of Kante, Pogba and Rabiot most people, most countries, most clubs would absolutely love it. And none of the three are in this squad. 
Yeah, so just to give you an idea of the team France could put out right now who aren't, well, not right now because one or two of them are injured, but this is players who are not in the current squad. Hugo Lloris is a goalkeeper. Leo Dubois at right back. Theo Hernandez at left back. Ibu Kanate and Lucas Hernandez as the centre-backs. Like, that's outstanding. That's and then in the midfield, you could play the midfield you mentioned. Yeah, you mean you could improve it, but you could play Bubakar Kamara at right back and improve it even further. And you probably would win the Premier League with that defence. You mentioned Rabio Kante Pogba. They're all obviously, especially in the cases of Pogba and Rabio, they're better for France than they are largely at club level. And then in attack, Benzema is not in this squad. Uh, Moussa Diaby is not in this squad, who's been breathtaking for Leverkusen for the last year. A bit of a rough start to this season. And Kingsley Coleman, who's one of the best wingers in the world. None of those are in the current French squad for this round of games. That doesn't include Wissam Ben Yedder, who's a quality player. It doesn't include Anthony Martial, who, you know, splits opinion, but there's clearly a lot of talent there. Uh, Luca Digne. There's just there's so much at his disposal that I agree. I, I think they should go and win this World Cup. And I said it after they won the last World Cup. The only thing that stops them winning the next one, and possibly the one after that, is mismanagement. Now, Didier Deschamps is more than capable of some mismanagement. He single-handedly cost France the Euros in 2016. He made a pig's ear of the last Euros. And I do have major questions about him. I don't think he's a good manager. But there's so much talent at his disposal that it's they're going to make the semi-finals even if they don't play well, in my view. I think they'll they'll have to make an almighty uh, mess up in in a game for that not to happen. To be honest, because the, the two things I would say is like a lot of these squad players who they have because there's so much talent there, a lot of them are not that experienced at international level. So like they're going to have some people in this squad who are like unbelievably talented but have like eight caps sort of thing. So it's not loads and when you do need to call on them obviously mm. you're going to be hoping that they show their best side rather than I'm on the big stage now sort of thing finally because they, they have been waiting like quite a long time even people like Ferland Mendy who's been, been at Real Madrid for a while now he's still got seven caps and he's 27 years of age like these seven really caps he's 27 years of age I know it's, it's mad it's really competitive to get in the squad let alone in the team so that's one thing that I have a little bit holding me back from saying nobody's going to touch them. And the other one is that quite a lot of the defenders who we've been talking about for years and years and years and years, and loads of them are really good, do have a mistake in them still. I would include in that even like Benjamin Pavard, who's like mm. obviously very, very established now uh, at senior level, Dale Upamakano, who is really good and could be one of the best around, but makes mistakes. He's done it with Bayern, he's done it with um, Leipzig, obviously, yeah. and he's done it with France as well. And the rest of them, Badiashile, I think, is a very, very good defender, but he's uncapped. I assume he's not going to go when once everybody's available. Saliba, again, very, very young, only a handful of caps. Probably doesn't start if everybody is available anyway. Uh, and even, like, Lucas Hernandez, who I love, absolutely love him, and he would be definitely in the team if he's fit. 
he can have a bit of a moment of a complete brain dead incident in the game. And I would carry on that throughout most of the midfield as well. If Gunduzi starts or Kamavinga starts or Rabio or Pogba are playing, all of them are capable of doing the exact same thing. I think it's been announced today now that Bubakar Kamara of Aston Villa is not going to make the tournament at all. Uh, he's not going to be back until, I think it was mid to late November, so he's basically not going to be ready for the World Cup at all. So that's a shame for him and a, quite a miss for yeah. France in terms of versatility as much as anything else. Um, but those are the only two it's things also I a big loss say. for Steven Gerrard, whose job might yes. be under... Yes, yes indeed. Um, but those are the two things, I think, which stop me thinking France are going to absolutely walk the World Cup. Mm. Yeah, I mean... Lloris will, will be the starting goalkeeper. There's little to no doubt about that. Mike Mannion is their best goalkeeper, but Lloris is the captain, so he will retain his spot. Um, they've got question marks at right back. Personally, I would start Jules Koundé. I think Deschamps might well start Benji Pavard. I would be starting Theo Hernandez at left back. I think Ferland Mendy might start, or potentially Luca Dina, who Luca, Luca Dina for me is the weakest of those three. Um, I'd probably go Varane and Lucas Hernandez as the starting pair in the middle. Um, but it may well be that it's Upamecano or Saliba who gets the nod if Lucas Hernandez isn't fit. Midfield will be a question mark because Pogba we don't know yet. And Deschamps has said, unless he's 100% fit, I'm not bringing him. I, I think he's going to bring him regardless. But I mean... If we base it on form over the last 12 months, Chiumeni should be starting. And I think they look a better team when he starts. I I think he's won his place in this team. Yeah, he probably does, to be fair. So it's probably him, Pogba and Kante if all three are fit. And if Pogba isn't fit, then there's a question mark. Then there's, is it Kamavinga? Does he change the shape a little bit? Does... Does he go to a, a, cam, a Chiuameni Kante double pivot and play, I don't know, Nkunku as a 10? Uh, I have a tough time seeing him do that, but you never know. Um, they're going to be they're going to be really tough to beat. They're going to be really... Go ahead. I was going to say the one alternative that they do have as the 10 is, who I mentioned before, Griezmann, who obviously is not what we see as his position, but when he plays mm. in France, he's done it in the diamond, he's done it in a... Uh, a three-four-three. Effectively, he plays as a, a really deep nine-stroke ten, and he gets through so much work rate, and he obviously enables them to play uh, to an attack rather than two wider players if they want to as well. So I do like the idea, even if they're playing a four-two-three-one, if they haven't got everybody available, he plays Griezmann as a ten because he does really rely on him as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Griezmann as a ten behind Benzema. With Mbappe wide one side and Usman Dembele wide the other. I mean, best of luck trying to stop them. I suppose there is a question of... Does Benzema get the best out of Mbappe and Griezmann in the same way that Olivier Giroud does? Because Olivier Giroud has been so important for France over the past six, seven years... A large part of that, obviously, Benzema was away from the national team for different reasons. Benzema is, I would say, let's just say he's one of the top three strikers in the world right now and has been for the last couple of years. 
I'd say him, Kane and Lewandowski are the top three. But are France better with Giroud than they are with Benzema? Uh, I mean, I don't think personally that there's a problem with playing Benzema and Mbappe together. But then you have to have the balance elsewhere. I mean, you need a, let's say for, for one of a better term, you need a Giroud maybe at the 10 or on the right wing, for example. You've got to have that balance because when they play the 4-2-3-1 or similar with Mbappe from the left... He's obviously not the one who is tracking back so much. He's not necessarily doing so much off-the-ball work. And that's what Giroud, when he plays, is giving you a bit more of. Not in terms of defensive work, but in terms of not having to do the defensive work because he holds it up a little bit better than Benzema might do if he's looking more to get on the end of things. He is bringing more attackers into play so that France have a bit more sustained pressure higher upfield, whereas Benzema is obviously looking to be on the end of all those moves. So it's just a slightly different way of Playing. And I wouldn't be surprised if at different times during the World Cup they have uh, opportunity to play both of them. But I would be very surprised, given the group that they have, if Giroud starts any of them, unless they're like comfortably through going into the final group game. Yeah, in fairness, it is a, a fairly straightforward group. I think the interest is who finishes second. Uh, we'll move on then to uh, Australia. Um making their sixth appearance at a World Cup. The best they've managed so far is the round of 16. I wouldn't say it's a vintage Australian squad by any stretch, but there are some really good players and some well-known players in the group. And obviously, in qualifying, they finished third in that group behind Saudi Arabia and Japan, went into the um, the playoff where they played Peru, drew nil-nil, and beat them on penalties 5-4. Um, I, I don't know really what to make of this Australian squad. Most of them are European-based, and I, I'm aware of most of them, but there's no one that really... There's no one that really jumps out to me and makes me think, well, you know, that's somebody that can make a big difference at an international tournament? No, um, I think the reason for that is because mostly they're not very good, to be unfortunately honest. Um, I was hoping for a bit more from this group. I was hoping for a bit more from a few players who are not even in this group at the moment, like Tom Rogic has never really done what he could have been capable of. Um, quite a few players who you know, even were playing uh, based in Australia and were quite well spoken about for a few years who've just never really kicked on Andrew Naboot, one of them, Daniel Azani, another one of them, and they've never really gone on and achieved... He's a big disappointment. Azani, yeah, yeah, it's just not happened for him at all. I mean, a few of yeah, obviously yeah. along the way, but um, I, I, I watch quite a bit of Australia, they're one of the sides who I do watch for, for reasons... Um, but it just it doesn't really come together for them too well. They they basically got through the qualifiers by being the most gritty and hard working team as possible, and obviously taking a couple of sort of set pieces and everything in the in the playoff against UAE, and then standing firm to get to penalties basically against Peru. So it was 
not inspiring, mm. but obviously that's that's the way that they've probably got to uh, approach the the group stage as a whole as well. To be honest, they've actually played um, today and beaten New Zealand one 0 in a friendly, which you know, gives them a bit more confidence. And they seem to have played a little bit more of a, an adventurous style in terms of the wingers and, and support of the forward line in that game. But I, I wouldn't be expecting that to be the case once the World Cup group stage starts. I think there's still a, a few places which are up for grabs in the starting eleven, which I'm not sure bodes well, considering that you're basically picking the hardest working players. You should probably already have a few more combinations and areas which are very, very key to that tactical shape locked down in that kind of a team. But it is still a little bit all over the place. They've got one or two players who, if they play really well on their day, can help them win in terms of leading counterattacks and winning mm. one-on-ones in the final third. People like Matthew Leckie are like good players, just really inconsistent with the end product. Yeah, and I mean, when you look at the squad, there's not a huge amount of goals in it. Only Leckie has over 10. He's got 13, but in 72 games. After that, you've got Jamie McLaren and um, Bill. Both of them have eight. Jackson Irvine and Aaron Moy have seven. So does Mitchell Duke. And then Adam Taggart has six. Martin Boyle is probably the most prolific scorer they have. He's got five in 19. Tom uh, Rojic, like you said, I mean, he, he stayed at Celtic too long is what happened with him. And he was very good for Celtic for a number of years, but he stayed there too long. He should have been leaving probably around 2018, maybe even a year earlier. He'd had two really good seasons at Celtic in 15-16 and 16-17. And then he had a decent year in 17-18, and he, that should have been the last time he played for Celtic. He should have looked to move at that point. He was in his mid-20s. He had offers to go. But he was very happy at Celtic. He was very comfortable with his life and he decided to hang on. And, you know, he's he's been a good player for them since, no doubt. And he had a good year last year, but they decided to move on from him in the summer and he's landed at West Brom. Another one who's been disappointing, uh, Harry Souter. Now, he has six goals in 10 games um, from centre-back, but I think he scored against like Chinese Taipei and Nepal and, you know, a bunch of crappy teams that aren't really a measure of anything. He's a big giant of a centre-back, born in Scotland, but his mother is Australian, plays for Stoke, has been... has been disappointing for Stoke and has fallen out of favour with the national team as well. I think he's had some injuries as well, which haven't helped, but... Overall, I, I, it's just it's a bit of a slog with this team. Their their fans will be great. The Aussie fans are always great, and I always kind of will root for Australia because I have a lot of family ties to Australia. But yeah, I, I don't foresee much from them in this group, and it wouldn't surprise me if they're the team who finish bottom. Yeah, uh, same really. <laughs> I think that probably looking at the Tunisia one as when their World Cup probably starts because starting against France obviously is a ridiculously difficult thing to do and they basically know they'll need to mm. probably draw one and win one of the last two games so you probably got to go into that Tunisia game knowing exactly what your shape is not having taken a beating against France in the opener and be ready to take your chances when they come along 
Um, the midfield for Australia is really, really important. Obviously, the, the shape and everything, as I've said, changes very, very slightly sometimes. But basically, you've got a three in the middle of Aaron Moy, uh, Ajahn Rustic, who has just moved to, to Italy, actually, with uh, Verona. So he's just starting to make his way there. So hopefully he gets a good bit of game time and should be a really big help for him, uh, for, for Australia. And then Jackson Irvine is the third one. So if they can keep those three together who do play most of the games, then at least that gives them a base to build from. And then whatever happens in attack, they can try and work around it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Right, on to Denmark then. Um, this is a, a talented squad. There's a lot of players I like in the group, but I do have some concerns. Uh, first concern, Kasper Schmeichel. Uh, has had a fairly disastrous start to life at Nice and has been dropped already. But he has dominated the goalkeeping position for 10 years now at this point, or however long it's been, and is going to be the first-choice goalkeeper no matter what. Um, Simon Kerr, I will no longer slander after his actions at the Euros, but he's not he's not even one of the three best centre-backs that Denmark currently have. Um, Andreas Christensen is significantly better. Joachim Andersen is significantly better. And I think Victor Nielsen is better than him as well. But Simon Kerr will start as captain. So that's two problems. Um, I like the wingbacks. I think they've got you know really fun players in the likes of Joachim Mal and Rasmus uh, Christensen, who I do like. Uh, Jan Stryger Larsen's obviously a good player as well, who's very experienced. In midfield, you've got Christian Eriksen, you've got Thomas Delaney, you've got Pierre Emil Heusberg, Matthias Jensen, Philip Billing, uh, Christian Norgard of Brentford is in that group as well. So it's a strong group, largely hard, hard working grafters, plus then the creativity of Eriksen. Up front, I, I have some concerns because. I like Dahlberg as a player, but he hasn't really kicked on in any way from what he was at 19. I would say the same of Andreas Skov Olsen. I don't think he's developed over the last couple of years. I would say Robert Skov, exactly the same. Looked a very good player a few years ago, but hasn't developed. I really like Damsgaard. I like Anders Dreyer, but I'm not sure if he's good enough at the international level. And uh, Jesper Lindstrom, I think, is more suited to playing in midfield, but obviously with the way Denmark set up, he does play more in the forward group, and he's impressed me for Eintracht Frankfurt. But like him and Damsgaard, for me, I'd like to see them a bit, bit deeper, but they just don't have the real options in attack, so those two have to get pushed on into the attacking group. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, to be fair, at the minute, this squad that they've got, there's at least two or three uh, attackers who are, will be involved at the World Cup if they're fit. Um, I think Vind goes, Cornelius goes, and Jusup Poulsen goes, if, if they're all like, properly available and everything. So I could see it being a little bit different for that group anyway. Um, I, I think it's quite interesting. Obviously, when, when the Ericsson thing happened at the Euros, they switched systems then, and they went to the wing-backs, and it worked very, very well for them, of course. Um, you know, setting aside the fact that they had this massive momentum and togetherness anyway, tactically it was 
very, very suited to the way they wanted to play. Now, since Ericsson has come back in, they've had a couple of games where they've reverted to the 4-3-3 and had mixed results with it, I think. Um, but he has also been then integrated into that wing-back system as well, playing slightly higher up, either behind two forwards or off to the sort of left-hand side in the three that they were playing. Um, so it's interesting how they're going to try and get him back in because it's no longer, I don't really think, about building the system around him. So that's one really interesting thing that has taken place tactically with this team. And I think that's probably a good thing overall. Uh, obviously, we, we've spoken about a few of the coaches who you're less than keen on at the World Cup. But I think Kasper Hulmund is will be very highly regarded by most people at the minute, considering the job he's done overall. Uh, and is obviously linked with quite yes. a lot of club as well. So the defence... Personally, I would still have Simon Kier playing if the alternative is starting Yannick Vestergaard, who I think is a monstrous waste of human flesh, basically, when he's playing defence recently, over the last um, probably two years or so. Uh, I, I do like it when they have, let's say, Christensen, then maybe Kier on one side, and there's obviously a number of rotating cars, but Boylison maybe is the other one, for example, your Commanderson perhaps. So depends how they line up exactly. But I do think that there's enough quality here to at least upset one really good team. And it's probably worth noting that obviously being in the same group as France, they beat France not all that long ago in the Nations League as well. So they're not exactly going to be surprised by what they come up against. That was a game that Mbappe and Griezmann both started together. And uh, Denmark, I think, fell behind and came back to win that game, didn't they? And it was uh, one of the Andreas Cornelius doubles off the bench. So an interesting one to watch out for there. I do like the fact that they keep chopping and changing the double pivot midfield, quite similar to how Spurs do it. You know, they've got two or three, maybe even four of the same type of midfielders who are like ball winners and defensive and protectors, but can surge forward and be a bit aggressive going forward as well. And they'll just keep swapping between them rather than trying to do too much else. Yeah, and what that does, especially in a tournament setting, is it allows you to keep everybody fairly fresh, which is going to be important playing in that kind of heat. I know they're saying the stadiums will be air-conditioned, but they're going to be hot. So I think that is important as well. Like you said, they've they've moved to make Ericsson part of the system rather than making the system an, ex- an extension of Ericsson. And it remains to be seen if if that will work at the World Cup. I hope that it will. Uh, like you, I very much like Casper Hillman. And I'm surprised. Well, I'm not surprised. I-, I thought he would have been Brighton's number one choice to come in and replace um, Potter. But obviously with the World Cup coming up, he wasn't going to leave before the World Cup. But it wouldn't surprise me if he is a Premier League manager after the World Cup. Because I think we'll see one or two Premier League clubs decide to make a change during that World Cup break. And it wouldn't surprise me if he gets one of the jobs. For example, if Aston Villa were to make the decision to move on from Steven Gerrard, it wouldn't surprise me if he was someone that was on their shortlist. Because Johan Lange, the... Aston Villa director of football is our sporting director, I think is his actual title. He is Danish. He will be fully aware of what Hillman is capable of. I think Leicester could take a look at him as well. Uh, Everton, I think, 
is another club that could potentially make a change in that time. So it wouldn't surprise me if he's in the Premier League after Christmas. I think he's a very good manager. I think he's done great work with this national team. Um, and like with all national teams, you're, there's going to be certain things about it that aren't ideal for you. So, for example, I think he probably, in an ideal world, would have moved on from some of these older players who've maybe been underperforming for quite a while at club level and made it more of a meritocracy. But it's also important to keep that leadership council and keep that kind of continuity in the squad and the harmony in the squad. I think the Danes will come out of this group. Um, I was I was impressed by them in qualification. Um, finished top of Group F. Nine wins, just the one defeat. Now, not the toughest opponents, but Scotland, Israel and Austria are all decent teams. Uh, Faroe Islands and Moldova, obviously the whipping boys of the group. They did win their first nine in a row and then lost to Scotland in the um in the tenth game. Funnily enough, the brother of Harry Souter, who I mentioned last time, John, was playing for Scotland and scored against the Danes in that game along with Che Adams. Um I, I think Denmark will come through. I, I have them penciled in for second at the moment. But I don't want to write off Tunisia Carl because this is a decent Tunisian squad. There's not there's no real star names in this squad, but there's a lot of talented players and very, very hard grafting players who I think will make life difficult for everybody they come up against. Yeah, they're another side. Um, not that I've watched the games, so I'm not going to say how they performed or anything, but the results that they've had over the last, let's say, six months or so, really impressive. Um, beating Mali in a qualifier beaten Chile. Um, not sure how exactly seriously people take the Kieran Cup these days, but um, getting results against them and Japan is a pretty good thing. And a friendly against Brazil, I think, to come in this international break as well. So they're certainly giving themselves decent tests and it'll be worth a, a little look at them. A squad which has been together for absolutely ages. It seems like some of these players have been around since, I don't know, maybe since the first World Cup took place, to be perfectly honest. Because uh, this group just looks like exactly the same as it always does, more or less. So um definitely going to have a look at them before the World Cup starts because it's you know, been ages since I've, I've watched Tunisia, to be perfectly honest. Um, I've gone a couple of games of theirs, I saw. I think maybe the Nigeria match that they won. not really sure too many others, to be fair, off the top of my head. But definitely got enough players in there who we already know from club level have really good individual ability. Lots of players who, like I say, are very, very familiar at this level and have played together for ages. So they're not going to be an easy side to get past. I like Denmark overall for the amount of um, probably individual ability in, in midfield and across those wing-back areas in particular. So I'm not going to put Tunisia to go through this group. But as I've said a couple of times already, so much depends on how good a start you have. And it is Denmark v Tunisia in the first match as well. Mm. So... A surprise result there or something that just works out in Tunisia's favour, even if they get a point from that game and then they go and play Australia in the second match, that's a, a huge motivational thing which could see them go through for sure. Yeah, yeah, without doubt. I mean, the, the, we know a couple of things. They're going to be well organised. They're going to work really hard. They're Like you said, they've been together 
for years. And most of this squad are sort of late thir- late twenties into their thirties. And have just literally played together so many times that they know each other really, really well. Uh, much of the the burden of this team will fall on the the front two, um, Sackney and Kazri. Um, Kazri's knocked around for years in Kazri must um, be fifty years old by now in France in Liga. He, I, I, so, so I looked at the um, the Tunisian squad before the Afcon, and thought it was somebody else because I was convinced that the Kazri that I remembered, who'd been at Sunderland, had to be like well into his late thirties by now, at, at least well into his late thirties. And uh, no, he is only thirty-one. He just seems to have been knocking around forever. Um, Asakni's the same. He's, I don't think he's ever left, um, or he's never come to Europe. He played in Tunisia up until he was, uh, 23 and then moved to Qatar and is sort of, oh no, he did. He came to, he went to Upen in, in Belgium on loan for six months. But other than that, he's played in Qatar and he's played in Tunisia. But he's a very good player at international level. He is their captain. Can play wider through the middle. And will be problematic for teams, but yeah, I mean, if you're looking for star names, I mean, the one that will probably jump out to people, not as a star name, but as somebody everybody will recognise, is Hannibal Mejbri. And if you don't know him by name, you'll know him by hair. Um, he is he is a, a very good young player who is sort of the future of Tunisia, but he's also the now of Tunisia. He's already got 16 caps at age 19. And um, it's likely to be a part of this squad for a long, long time. Another player to watch is Omar Rakik, who is owned by Arsenal on loan at Sparta Rotterdam this year. He's the younger brother of um, Kareem Rakik, who played, well, still plays. And some Kareem Rakik is only 27 years of age. I would have been convinced he was about 35. Uh, he's currently at Sevilla. Um, he's been everywhere. He's City, Portsmouth, Blackburn, PSV, Marseille, Hertha Berlin, and now um, now Sevilla. I could have sworn he would have many more caps. I wonder, does he regret his four Netherlands caps because he could be going to the World Cup with Tunisia if he'd made the right decision, especially considering he was actually you know, made more than one offer. Um, I've kind of lost my train of thought. The one thing I, I, I have some worries about, I, I do just think maybe the lack of really high-level experience will harm them. Like, they don't have... There's only one player, two players in the entire squad currently playing in a top five league. Now, that's not the be-all and end-all, but that's a little bit of a concern for me. Yeah, I think that's fair if you're talking about, you know, can they go quite deep or can they go and, uh, and achieve something notable, let's say. But I think much easier and given the standing that they've had probably, because, I mean, they've not even been among the... Um, African nations to qualify for the World Cup on a regular basis, really. I think it's just one in the last five, six World Cups, something like that. 
Um, so, so being back at the World Cup is a big step forward for them. Um, I think there are a couple of players who they could really rely upon to try and get them a one win at the very least. Like, the, I think a victory here has got to be the absolute minimum. I think they've only got like two wins at the World Cup finals all time. So, a victory here is a big, big thing for them. It might well be that that victory allows them to go through. Like I say, if they get a good start against Denmark, um, one, uh, two other players. In fact, I'm going to mention one of them for. General interest, and one of them because I do think he's a good player. Um, Elish Skiri plays in midfield. Um, he's obviously with uh, Köln in Germany in the Bundesliga. He is like a, an every week, every minute sort of player, and he's a very, very tenacious defensive midfielder. He's one of the ones who could actually provide a bit of top tier quality for them, let's say. Um, it will be in a much more defensive than attack minded sense, but they're going to need that as well, let's be fair. Uh, the other one is just a, a curiosity, really. That's um, Enis Ben Slimani, who's a, a midfielder. He obviously is in this group with Tunisia, who are also in the group with Denmark. And Ben Slimani was born in Copenhagen and has played his mm. entire career in Denmark and was a Denmark youth international before deciding to play for Tunisia at international level. Yeah, he is a very, very interesting case because... He was he was notorious long before he'd ever even made a first team appearance in Denmark because he was he would jump from academy to academy on a yearly basis. In his youth career, he played for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine clubs across ten spells, because he sorry. Eight clubs across ten spells. He had two spells at um, at K- KB and two spells at Bronby. But he literally jumped here, there, and everywhere in his youth career, which generally isn't a good sign. Generally, that's a worry. But he's gone on to do quite well for Bronby. And um, I think the Danes were a little bit annoyed when he decided to declare... For Tunisia, but yeah, I'll be curious to see him. He he's certainly someone that had quite a bit of hype about him, but it was more down to the fact that he was jumping a club to club as a young player. I think he he was one of those who just kind of thought quite a lot of himself. We'll see how he does in this World Cup, but there's no doubting he's a decent footballer. Um, and he and he should offer them something that maybe they lack elsewhere, like a, a bit of creativity a bit of power from midfield. You know, he, he is the type who can get himself into the box and be a forceful player. Um, doesn't ha- offer a huge amount of goals, but he's still very young, so we'll wait and see. Um, yeah, so that is that. That is Group D. Um, are we agreed that France first, Denmark second, Tunisia third, and Australia fourth is our predicted finishing? Yeah. Yeah, I think so, unfortunately, for Australia. Um, I think that Denmark, you know, if we're correct in our predictions, obviously, have got a really good chance of beating Argentina in the next round as well. If Argentina haven't sorted out those issues that we, we spoke about, especially in attack, and making sure that they've got mm. a way to let um, Messi perform and the others perform around him, I think Denmark are one of the sides who have really good structure, really confident in their ability, enough high-level players to go toe-to-toe with whatever Argentina can throw at them, apart from Messi. Obviously, he's a, gay, a guy who can always win a game just in a, a moment by himself. But I think Denmark's best ever achievement of the World Cup is quarterfinals. So I 
might have a sneaky little tip on them to uh, to at least match that this time around. Yeah, I think that's a fair shout. Uh, they made the quarterfinals in '98. Um, that was obviously the team with the with the Louder brothers, and uh, I think Peter Schmeichel was still in goal, and sort of it was the last dying embers of the '92 team that were still knocking around there. They are currently 11th in the FIFA rankings, rankings, which is significantly higher than 35th place Tunisia and 42nd place Australia. Just worth noticing and uh, noting with Tunisia, their qualification, they finished top of a group with Equatorial Guinea, Zambia and Mauritania, none of whom would be considered footballing powerhouses. And then they did, did beat Mali over two legs, which was a surprise. Like, Mali were expected to beat them. Mali have a very good team. But if they beat them 1-0 over two legs with an own goal from Musa Sissako, um, so they, they didn't even bother to score themselves because they just didn't need to. Why score goals, Carl, when you don't need to score goals? If, if another team is willing to score a goal for you, just sit back and relax. Um, right, that is Group D. We will be back next week with E and F. And then G and H, and uh, that'll be us finished previewing the group stage. So if you have anything to plug before we go, Mr. Matchett, do it now. I do have a Roberto Zerben piece, so if you'd like to see a bit more about what the new Brighton bus is about, that's on The Independent. And give Carl a follow on Twitter, at Carl Matchett. Read his work on The Independent, and sometimes on This Is Anfield. Follow Guy Drinkle, at Guy Drinkle. And follow me at EPL Index. We will see you next week. Take care of yourselves and have a pleasant weekend. Not a good weekend, but just a pleasant weekend. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.